Right, good evening and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Ricky Burdett and I'm a professor of urban studies here at the school. Uh, we're here to enjoy and celebrate this wonderful new publication uh, by Richard Rogers and Richard Brown. They're two authors of this uh, wonderful book, which is about the life of one of the two. Uh, Richard is far too young to, the other Richard, that one. Richard Brown is far too young to write a, an autobiography at the moment. It's published by Canongate, who've done a really wonderful job, and I hope many of you get a chance to uh, look at it, possibly even buy it, which you can do at the end of uh, this evening's proceedings. And in fact, Richard will be happy to sign some of the books at the end if you have them. Um, just come up here and Richard will sign them if you are um, keen to do that. Um, we will wrap up sometime before uh, 8 p.m., but let me tell you how the evening is going to be organized. I'm going to talk um, for about five minutes or so uh, a little bit about the book, showing just a few slides of uh, some of the canonical work uh, that Richard and his various practices, uh, at the moment there is one practice which is present in the room, which I'll come to uh, later today, but I'm going to show a few slides of some of the work and just remind ourselves of its power and its significance. Uh, then I will be joined by Amanda Levite, who I'll introduce in a moment, and Alan Yentob, who's stuck in traffic. That's a well-known phrase for many of us uh, in this room, to know that he's running a little bit late, but he's going to be here soon. And we're going to have a conversation uh, with Richard, uh, with uh, taking some different perspectives of uh, things that are in the book, and actually, interestingly, some things which are not in the book. And I think it's important to also bring some of those issues uh, out. Um, we will then have time after that for uh, questions and answers. And as ever, uh, here at the LSE, uh, there are people with microphones who will come uh, if you put your hand up. And I really encourage everyone in the room, all of you at the back, to uh, feel participant in that. Uh, microphone will come to you. Please say who you are and uh, don't make a long speech. Just ask a question. Or if you've got a statement to make, that's great. But try and keep it concise so that we can get uh, backwards and forwards. And Richard, Alan, if he's, when he's here, and Amanda uh, will respond to that. My role is to very much chair uh, the, the whole discussion and make it work. Now, uh, Richard's um, life uh, is in the book. We'll talk about it in a moment. But I just want to introduce briefly Amanda <coughs> and Alan so that we know who he is when he comes. Uh, Amanda is an architect who now runs a practice called Amanda Levitt Architects, very well known to many at the moment who live and enjoy London because of the exceptional new building, uh, partly an entrance, but much, much more than an entrance, with galleries and many other facilities uh, on known as the Exhibition Road quarter of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Uh, but most importantly, and I guess Amanda, one of the reasons you're here is because your practice was you started working with Richard uh, when you started your practice, and then things moved on from there, and I think that's interesting. And Alan Yentob, uh, I think also familiar to many of you in the room as the director of t uh, television at the BBC, the producer, inventor, editor of programs like uh, Arena, uh, Imagine, and many others, who's been a very close friend of Richard and Ruthie's for, I think, up to 40 years, in fact, uh, and has been able to sort of chronicle some of the, the work, but also the ideas and its impact on wider culture and, um, and even the politics of uh, uh, London and the UK. 
And I think those words are very, very significant, the sort of the politics of uh, art, the politics of architecture, and how they relate. I think that is really significant, because if I ever have to think of, a cha- of, of an event I want to chair, right, one event I want to chair in life, right, with my favorite subject, it's this one. Why? It's about architecture in cities, and it's about Richard Rogers. I mean, you know, it doesn't, doesn't get better than that. What do I mean by that? I, I mean that... Um, um, the whole understanding of architecture in its wider sense, the physical world and how it relates to the social world, which is exactly what a number of us here at LSE Cities do in our research programs and other colleagues, is very much shaped by the discussions and uh, conversations that we've been having over the years. I don't think it would exist if it weren't for the conversations we've had. Uh, so in that sense, it's a very good subject uh, to actually have here um, at the LSE. Now, apart from turning off the machine, which I don't want to do, um, I just wanted, as I said, show a few slides which remind us of what the work is about and how powerful, innovative, and still fresh and important and new it is. I mean, many of you will know, will have visited, will have experienced, and I'm sorry, it's above your head, but I think you both know this building well, of the Pompidou Center. Just think, this is uh, early 70s, just a few years after the 1968 Paris riots. This is radical stuff built, not just talked about. Completely rethinking the program internally and externally, and going back to the themes that I guess interest us and we'll no doubt talk about, it's not just the radicality of making this building completely open, hence all the the structure and the tubes and the services are outside, But what Richard and his then uh, partner and long-life friend, uh, Renzo Piano, did was actually say, you know, rather than just put a museum in this urban fabric, why don't we give Paris something that it doesn't have or hasn't had for many, many centuries at that point, a fantastic public space? So this building is much more than just the building. It's about a contribution to the city. So the title of the book, A Place for All People, very much relates to this discussion. And obviously, um, much of uh, the early parts of the book relate to the fact that Richard uh, spent his early life in uh, two extraordinary cities in Italy, uh, Trieste and Florence, um, and uh, experiencing places, public spaces of the sort, are very much behind the spirit of what is there. So I think one of the things we want to reflect on is also how does one bring the contemporary without losing the power of the past? And this painting by Masaccio, it could have been Piero della Francesca, it could be many others, about individuals engaging, in this case it's mainly all men, um, in the public realm of the city as it was then, also says something about not only continuity and engagement in the public realm. It's a little bit of a secret, and we did not compare notes with Richard about what color he would wear tonight. But... <laughs> this notion that, you know, the oranges and the pinks and the greens, there's something about understanding the essence of the past and bringing it forward without it being in any way uh, romantic or backward-looking, which really infuses the work. A few years later, a decade or so later, the uh, Lloyds Building is just as significant, even though in London many people know the outside, not the inside, these two images for me, for us, are striking. Why are they striking? Because they show this extraordinary vast interior. For those of you who are architects, 
you'll be able to read this cross-section of this vast room, which goes up six, seven, ten stories high. But the whole idea about this is this was an institution <clears throat> that was going to change. So it didn't know where it should have floors, where it should have entrances, where it should have desks. And the notion behind this, which was the winning notion <clears throat> for a very young practice, was how can we make this adaptable? How can we therefore connect to future unknowns without having to rebuild the whole thing from scratch? So the notion of public space that we see here is also infects the notion of, sort of the publicness of this building and how it connects to the outside. <clears throat> Richard Sennett, who is here, he might have not um, been here, so I was going to steal one of his sentences, but I will anyway, uh, talks about the importance of Richard's work in actually humanizing technology. And I think we can see it in this and other buildings. And when one thinks about the notion of human and humanity, many of these grand ideas, many of, sorry, many of these ideas which apply to some of the bigger scale and larger buildings, I think apply to many of the buildings that the practice has done over the years. And in this case, the Maggie Center, which is for uh, helping uh, uh, patients in their last years of life suffering from cancer, one of a number of wonderful buildings actually designed and sponsored by an organization run by a close friend of Richard and Ruthie's, in fact, uses the notion of transparency, of light, of materials to soften every day's existence. So the notion of architecture actually being able to soften and humanize life is very much at the heart of what has been done by the different practices that Richard has been engaged in. I just want to end in terms of reintroducing to all of you um, what the power of Richard's work is, the house that he designed for his mother and father, a house that was designed practically 50 years ago uh, in Wimbledon. It's just been refurbished. It's uh, been donated by Richard and Ruthie and the family uh, to Harvard University, the Graduate School of Design. Different uh, fellows from different practices actually now come and do research there for three, four months a year. So it's actually becoming alive again. And again, this notion that a house designed for a wonderful artist, the mother, the potter, the doctor, the father, the Italian doctor, who was more English than the English, according to the book, which is a wonderful notion. I know a few Italians like that, has actually been changed and adapted. And in fact, what looks like and is a beautiful structure is actually made of what was then totally industrial units. It was stuff that was not available actually in the normal construction industry and brought into the making of a place of, I say, great beauty, great elegance. So this notion of using industry is very much at the heart of what the practice today, Roger Sturt Harbour, is doing in terms of actually uh, some of the new housing that is being built um, around London at the moment where we have an urgent need for such housing. So I've taken a little bit of the time in order to just provide a context for some of the discussions we're going to have. Uh, and I thought it would be interesting, and I'll join you at the table, uh, if um, in a moment I ask Amanda to sort of reflect what it was like actually working in Richard's earlier practices. But before we do that, Alan, welcome. Glad Thank to you. see you. And uh, said exactly everything about you. Uh, and uh, in a moment, perhaps you can join in uh, the conversation to talk about a number of aspects about Richard and his wider context and culture and the arts and politics. But uh, welcome to all and Amanda. Um, I just want to try and 
paint a, a, a sketchy picture of what it was like to work in Richard's office. I was there from 84 to 89. Um, I tried to get a job straight after college. I'd had about three interviews there. I was convinced I'd get a job, but somehow I didn't. And two years later, out of the blue, I got a call from Richard's office. And this was my dream come true. I mean, there was not a better office in London to work in. And on my first day, I remember so clearly, I'm sure you won't, Richard, but walking into a team meeting uh, for a competition, and there was Richard and, and the team, and Peter Rice, one of the greatest engineers of our time. And I was completely and utterly overwhelmed. But that, that was the beginning. And, and being in, in Richard's office, it was, you were part of the family, you were embraced, you were looked after, you had to work incredibly hard. You, um, it was an extremely demanding practice, but you wanted to give of your best. And there were extraordinary people, and, and there were these famous Monday morning design reviews where, and it was a much smaller office, then than it is now. So you, were, you, you could go to these design reviews if you dared, even if you weren't working on that project, just to observe the, the, the conversation and the dialogue between Richard and his directors and the team that were presenting the project. But there were always engineers there, not to talk necessarily about the engineering but who were part of the team who would critique from an engineering, but also from an architectural perspective. And I think that's one of the most, one of the things that I took away that was so special. And I think Richard was the first person to really do this, elevate engineers to the same level of architects. And these engineers were friends of Richard's and actually then became, over the years, friends of mine too. So it was an extremely... Um, uh, intellectually exciting place to, to work as, as well as being about great kind of technical design. And there were always interesting people coming through the office who were outside of the discipline of engineering, writers, filmmakers, politicians. Uh, it, it was extraordinary. And of course, to, to make you feel like family, Richard cared about what you ate and when I was there the River Cafe started and it used to be the office canteen and it, it, it didn't last too long as the office canteen but it was it, it, it was so emblematic of, 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 of how Richard wanted us to, to be part of the community and, and I remember having been there because there's another thing about Richard, and I think it comes through very clearly in this book, you cannot separate Richard's work from the man that Richard is. And I was called to a meeting at Richard's house because he wasn't feeling too well. It was meant to be in the office. And I was still quite new in the office, and I, I arrived at this fabulous house in Chelsea, and I was a little bit you know, overawed as I walked in. And I was told that Richard was upstairs in bed. So I walked up this amazing, bouncy, wonderful piece of engineering staircase. And there was Richard on the mezzanine in bed with Ruthie. Both had colds, watching Brief Encounter, crying <laughs> their eyes out. And I just thought, 
you know, this is the kind of marriage I want, is what flashed through my mind at that point. Before we come on to the wider impact on the profession, which I think would be interesting, and the, Richard, is it, it might be worth sharing with everyone here that, you know, this culture in the office that, you, that uh, Amanda's just described wasn't by chance. I mean, effectively, you, you, you actually have a constitution. Uh, there, 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 there's a very strong sense of what a business ethos should be like. And can you just say a few words, both what, what, what that was about, because it, it's still the case today, but it was very powerful in shaping younger people at the time, and where did it come from in, in your experience? And maybe you need to, to bring the microphone. I guess that the main reason was teamwork. One of the reasons of teamwork was that I have always had teamwork. I have some uh, large-scale problems. I don't draw well. Um, most people can't read my writing. What else can I say and so on? So other people can do it better than I can. So we would all get together. Um, I've also been, I suppose it's part of the whole concept of being a humanist, that the profession is not all that you do. You go work outside the profession. And it's, li it's about life. I mean, architecture is a, is about, it's a social work. It's social and art. And, of course, science plays an important part in that. So the whole concept of sharing. Uh, when I started, I looked at some of the sort of sh people who might do the same type of thing. We wanted to become a charity, or we wanted to give our office up as a ch uh, so that we could become a charity. <laughs> the... There was no way that we were allowed to do it at first. We really had to fight for it. But we did find that some of the big stores, some plastic makers and so on, had elements. So we borrowed those elements and we created this constitution, uh, which is all about a way of life. Give some details. Um, <laughs> directors or partners, depending what stage you're in, in, your, in the, when, you're, when you're looking at your organization, uh, can't earn more than nine times the lowest paid architect after two years. Um, it talks about we won't uh, do work on what we call, I suppose, war work. Um, I mean, there's some fine lines here uh, which are difficult to, def de to define. Uh, the idea that everybody should participate in the, we go away together in those days, perhaps not quite by that time, not quite. Uh, I remember that when it was sunny, we'd all fall into, we had one mini with moss growing in the windows, and there were about six of us, and we'd all fall into that and drive to the nearest, uh, to Brighton, when there was sun, and leave some poor secretary to, to man the, 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 man the phones. The idea was to humanize. That's a word I, and democratize. These are words which I greatly enjoy. Where do they come from? I don't know. I mean, I think, I suppose, maybe you could argue now, if you look back at the Renaissance and the Renaissance elements, but I think being a uh, human is sort of pretty... We can't avoid it. The question is, how do you interpret that humanity? But you could say maybe a little bit more about the, the, that historical connection with, with, with Italy, because I, I was struck, I said it before, that in a book of X hundred pages, your reference, your attachment to history, for someone who's so much propelled towards the future and gives us a great sense of optimism, was... was, was um, Actually, to me, refreshing you. Yeah, can I, can I say something about this? Um, I, I think this is really interesting what we're talking about because we're, we're having a conversation. And with Richard, it's always a conversation. It's not excluding architecture from our daily lives. It's all part of our lives. It's when it's 
I mean, you cannot, anyone who visits Italy cannot imagine that that environment doesn't mean something to everyone who's in it. But the other idea about modernism is very important. There was always modernism. When Richard takes you, as he has taken me on countless occasions, probably you, round Florence, okay. his apartment where he was born looks over Brunelleschi's dome. Brunelleschi was a modernist in his moment. And we're all modernists, because what is modernism about? It's about growing up. It's about the future. It's about looking forward. But it's also about living within a context, uh, living within, ex ex you know, with having a legacy that you can actually live. You know, we have to be compatible with each other. They're, they're, these ideas of fairness uh, are also part of the same idea that, you know, architecture doesn't live out there. I was saying to Ricky earlier that really and truly in the... Um, not, you know, there was a mo clearly there was an amazing moment about when modernism was invented, and it was just extraordinary. And it, it was to do with science and technology as well as it was to do with, with art and with uh, even with literature, but with, with all kinds of ideas about the future, exciting ideas about the future. But actually, they, they sort of we, we lost sight of those things. And although the 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 world that um, that Richard entered when he arrived in 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 Britain in the, in the war years, and post forty five was actually a, a very progressive era with with Bevan and the, the National Health Service and Morrison and things. LSE, yeah, at the LSE, but somehow or other, you know, the certainly in terms of architecture and in terms of modern art. Britain was sort of floundering somewhat. It was sort of preoccupied with other things. It wasn't interested. And I think this is particularly important in relation to the breadth now of our interests. No people now know the names of architects. They, they never had any idea before. The word architecture was sort of a bit of a mystery. What does that mean? There are buildings. But actually, I believe that, you know, the Pompidou was the first thing to make people go, oh, my God, what is that? And look where it's sitting. Look where it is. How did that happen? Uh, and that really, I think, was an extraordinary So, so let, let's take, you've made a number of points. Let's just take that um, context, uh, Richard, and go back to the, the, the okay. way you were brought up and how, how that, because that's interesting to unpack for, for us. Did it, did, how did it affect? Let me first of all say, I think, and I'm always, I'm always saying, all good architects are modern in their times. Yeah. I mean, and that, and I, just quickly to quote, when I, where we were opening Lloyd's of London, uh, and I was being heavily attacked by the press um, for change of the media, um, and uh, I sat next to the Dean of St. Paul's, and he told me this story, which I think every architect should learn by heart. Um, and he said, um, when Wren was 70, he realized he was getting to the end of his life. He'd been working on St. Paul's for 40 years. He was so fed up. When he built the last one, he put a 20-foot wattle fence all the way around it so that nobody could see it. Nothing changes. <laughs> I'm not allowed to put a wattle fence, but sometimes I sure feel like putting a wattle fence uh, around one's buildings. You know, it, it's the surprise. Technology has always changed architecture. It's changed economics, and it's changed society. I mean, what a fantastic jump from the cave... I haven't forgotten Florence, from the cave to the primitive hut, and from the primitive hut to the first great cities uh, around, along the Euphrates and in, and in that part of the, of the world. And I think we learn from all these things. We learn that we are a part of a continuity, and we can pick certain parts which helps us. In terms of Florence, yes, I was luckier. 
I chose, I was very fortunate, I chose the right parents. My father was a doctor, as you heard, <laughs> and my mother was a potter. I chose a great city to be born in, um, and I've, I've enjoyed it greatly ever since, and I go back there because all those elements which we all use, we started by talking about the Pompidou Piazza. I'm told that the reason we got the Pompidou competition was primarily because of the other 680 entries. Nobody had a big a reusable public space, where ours was over half the site. And I think that comes back from the Piazza della Signoria, or some markers and so on. Obviously, I didn't think in those big scales. In fact, one of the reasons I didn't want to do, uh, it's a long story, so I won't go into it, but uh, one of the reasons I was the one... Uh, one of the reasons that when Renzo and I, and Ted Heppel's... Uh, 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 Ted was the engineer, Renzo Piano, the design... I'm sorry. I and Ted was group four at Arabs, uh, they wanted to do, I and Sue, my wife at that time, uh, didn't want to, and uh, we lost the vote. Um, but the reason we didn't want to, one of the reasons we didn't want to, we, the last thing we felt we wanted to do was a monument for a president. I mean, the idea of doing a monument even for, Pom for Pompidou. And we thought it's going to become a city hall, and we don't want to do this. And we liked the whole concept of Merrill the Minister of Culture under de Gaulle, who had decided that there should be Arts, cultural centers in each major city. And we thought that was going to sink that idea. So we voted against. Luckily, democracy won, we lost, and the building got built, so we were wrong. Before, <laughs> before I come back to uh, Amanda in terms of yeah. the relationship to the profession and innovation, Richard, in the book, you, uh, you make a reference to this wonderful square in Piazza della Signoria in Florence, which, which you know, we all go and take lots of photographs, assuming that it was all perfectly designed at one point in time. Yes, right? In fact, the buildings are, not one of them aligns, I think, you know, not one of them is next and the same height as the other ones. And you make a very interesting point about the difference between uh, uh, working with an existing older building that you need to respect and having the courage, and this will go back to the issue of innovation in a moment in, in, in architecture, to actually do something radically new, a la Ren. Do, do you want to that, that yeah. expand on that? I'm about to do a talk in New York, which I'm going to do it on harmony, and, I, and it starts by saying there are two types of harmony. Now, there's a whole series in between. There's harmony through contrast, Pompidou, many of the buildings, I mean, uh, your point about the, the major buildings specifically, specifically the Palazzo Vecchio with that big spa and of course St. Mark who's at the best place with that crazy uh, uh, clock tower with these green tiles with an amazingly white background and yet with a, a thousand years of different developed around nothing is like anything else so that is mainly by contrast and some part is through uh, fitting in into that in, in environment interestingly enough uh, the the ideal example in Palazzo della Signore is if you look at the Uffizi, that really does break the boundaries of that time. It's a, it's a, it's a, a late Michelangelo, it's a beautiful building, it's done by Vasari. If you go around the other side of the Palazzo Vecchio, which is basically a medieval building, and there's actually a little wing practically, and you can't see it. And then you realize that Vasari used two different techniques when he was repairing the building walls and extending its side. He did it exactly the same as the so exactly I can't find the actual gap between the Palazzo Vecchio and then when he moves around to the, to the museum, he uses his architecture. I feel that is a very good way. Now, there are things in between, but I do like that clarity of language. 
as far as Florence, it was very conscious of its architecture. I again quote from uh, one of the many uh, letters that I was once sent, uh, which pointed out to a letter that had been written in Florence about the uh, Strozzi uh, Tower. And it was eight stories tall, um, probably five, it's eight in terms of if you really work at it. And people were complaining about it being too high. So that too is not a new thing about building too high, so called. Height is, has gone on up, and height isn't a problem in itself. It's how you handle height. We'll come back to that, I'm sure, when maybe we talk about London, and there are bound to be questions about that issue from the floor. But Amanda, it, taking forward your notion of uh, what working in that environment meant for you, and you then went on and set up a practice with uh, Jan Kapritsky, Future Systems, and then now your own <coughs> practice, you've been also observing in a way how the culture of architecture itself has changed, and, you, uh, and, and that actually there's a, maybe more freedom than in other countries where there's a sort of more slavish uh, um, uh, orthodoxy about even modernism, which is what I think Alan was talking about in a moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, Richard's work, particularly with Pompidou, which I regard as one of the most important buildings of the 20th century, completely changed forever how the whole world would view museums and galleries. It, these were spaces, places that were intimidating, that you felt um, not maybe entitled to go into. And with Pompidou, first of all, this kind of incredibly radical move of giving over half of the site to a public piazza, but to create a building where even to ride the escalators had as much validity as to go in and see an exhibition. I mean, that was a massively radical move. And we would not have the museums that we have now were it not for Pompidou. And if you, even, you know, if you take something like Tate Modern, very, very different building and, and a conversion, but the... The, that there is a, a parallel there, which is Completely. that vast sloping floor down into the turbine space. That would never have happened without Pompidou. Um, Guggenheim Bilbao would never have happened without Pompidou because Why? there. That's be not obvious to Because Why? there was an understanding of the huge uh, regenerative, social, and financial no. spin off from a building as audacious as Pompidou and what it could do to a district. And, you know, th this was a, a part of Paris that was very depressed, um, that was very poor, yeah. and around Pompidou started, you know, any number of cafes and restaurants. It became a district. And, and you know, the iconography of it, the, the identification of Paris, you know, a beautiful city, but suddenly the identification of Paris wasn't just about history, it was about modernity. And although, you know, we talk about the Bilbao effect, it's not really the Bilbao effect, it's, for me, it's the, no, the, the Pompidou effect. I think effect. what Richard was saying, the Uffizi is the Bilbao of the time. I want to pick up what Amanda said about very important. Tate Modern, because it's very interesting, because we're talking about modernism, and we're talking... Most of the people in this room now can talk about architecture in the same vein as they would talk about art and other things, and the two are in, uh, interactive, integrated, and Amanda has just done a wonderful extension to, mm. to, uh, to the V&A. But the interesting thing about this is that 
There was also a crisis in, in the art world in Britain in the 1980s. And, you know, you will all remember, this, or some of you old enough to remember, will remember the, the Bricks debacle where, where people were outraged that the, the Tate was buying bricks. The, the Tate did not buy or acquire any valuable art at any point. It really, Tate Modern had very little when Richard, on the board of the Tate, appointed Nick Sirota to do that job. So what did he do? He created a destination in the, uh, with, with, the, uh, with, the, with Tate Modern, a place where ideas could flourish, where, uh, where Bruce Nauman could have a sound uh, event, where people were able to interact with, with new ideas. But actually, the collection of the Tate and the Tate Modern was, was not that great, but the place became an absolute sort of... And I completely agree with Amanda that it was, it was what the Pompidou had achieved that made that possible. And, and I think, uh, you know, that, that issue of modernism and being able... Britain being able to embrace it uh, and not sort of be in denial about it uh, was a very important moment in the 80s, and we've seen London flourish in many ways uh, since then, and when it had been in decline in the, in the 70s and, and, and actually even in the, in the 60s. And, and, I, you know, and, and this, the, the impact of Pompidou continues, and not just Pompidou, but the, you know, even at a, a, a smaller scale, the, um, the DRU building that you did, the, the, the roof extension, yellow submarine. Um, yellow submarine, and Jan Kapitsky did this very kind of famous photomontage of a, a car on top. And, you know, without, without that, I doubt we'd have the Herzog de Muren um, Philharmonie Elba, you know, which is the, exactly the same idea, take a very ordinary building and put something extraordinary and audacious on top. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I, I feel that the, your, your influence is not, you know, it's still there. It's because some of these, that this work, it was so raw, was so urgent, and it's that that kind of shifts debates and, and um, makes progress. That's just like, I think we're all trying to shift debate, but I think you're overdoing it, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, that's the point of tonight. That's, that's, so. I mean, you know, the, the story of, uh, of St. Paul's is in itself shifting the debate. In other words, it, it, it was rejected by Londoners. In terms of where London was, I was shocked when I came. I was five when I came from Italy in '39, um, And I was, as I became old, I was shocked how little art there was. Um, and there was no question the modern art was sort of frowned upon. We had that old story about, you know, my donkey could do better with its tail than Picasso, or whatever it was. Picasso it was exhibition. <laughs> <of 45. laughs> um, and there was a, that, that was a general, and that was said by a, a senior person. And many people have felt that, and the shock of the new was pretty, was pretty horrific. So in those terms it was. Though on the other hand, we had fantastic theatre, great uh, writing and so on. Somehow the visual arts... Uh, was very much behind. London started to change quite early on after that. The big gap, there's no question, that the big change came with, in, uh, with Nick Sirota, with Saatchi, with Goldsmiths. That period was a moment of a, a burst of uh, creativity. But I do want to come back to the fact that it has always been bursts of creativity, and Duchamp was a lot earlier than we were, for instance. So... I want to just connect this you know, burst of energy, burst of expression, 
to some of your, um, I think, very interesting moments in the book where you talk about your early trips to the States. Right? So uh, brought up in Italy, come to a dark and damp basement as opposed to the view of uh, the, the, the Florence Dome. Uh, but let's not forget uh, his you, arrival in Manhattan, I mean, and seeing that well, extraordinary sight. Rem, okay, rem, but remind, yeah, remi it's in the book, it's beautifully put. How you're, you get on a ship, go with your wife, uh, Sue, at that point, across the ocean and arrive at? Blur, I absolutely blur out of my mind, because uh, having been an appalling student all my life, I suddenly sort of understood where I was going in the last uh, year, helped by Peter Smithson, who was my year master. I managed to get to Yale. It's a Fulbright's run, but that's I and Sue. When I arrived in the States, leaving Southampton and looking down from the Queen, Elizabeth, I can't remember which one it was, um, and looking down, and it was, the scale was amazing. You know, the people with bicycles and little brown hats, and the baggage would go on the front, on the, uh, on, on the, uh, on, on the front wheel, um, and then arriving in New York and seeing these buildings a thousand times, it felt a thousand times taller than yourself. And it was more, I think, dramatic then because there was no Wall Street at the beginning. So you, the hill went upwards. The lower parts, the buildings were lower and they were on the waterfront. But as the hill went up, you didn't realize the hill went up, so the buildings looked even taller because they were sitting on the hill. And I shall never forget that. And then, of course, moving from that into the whole industrial age of New York and other cities, which we were on such a small scale in comparison. And that was a tremendously enlightening uh, period. I mean, that, that's where the, the Richard Senate point about actually taking a technology which belonged to another world of uh, industry, of silos, and other things which you, Norman Foster, and others who were traveling together at the time found exciting. You actually, in a way, brought that into a discussion of architecture which was, which, it was not there. It was a an interesting appropriation in many ways, which of course Alan was happening in art uh, in, in, other, in other ways. But we took it yeah. in to solve a social problem. The social problem at right. that time, yeah. sorry, yeah. Uh, was, shall we say, growth, growth and change. Again, going back to Lloyd's, the first statement to us when we did Lloyd's, which was the second major building we did when we were younger, was we want a building that can, keep, can change. And we're not in the building business, but we've, built four, we've changed building four times since the war, and we don't want to do it again. Um, building had been unable to cope with change. So if you want to do change, you're unlikely to use brick. I'm not saying that brick is wrong, but for that specific use, it's not a very logical use. Ditto, the Pompidou Center, the idea was that you could create a framework which you could not only change inside, I mean, there were no columns on the inside, there were no mechanical service. But on the, out, on the outside, you could change pieces. And so you had a framework in which change could take place. And so in that sense, again, the democratizing of the building. Well, is it worth asking, I mean, one of the challenges that face us all, and obviously Richard has been preoccupied with urban spaces and cities and how they are managed and how you get things done and achieved, and the big challenge of recent years of social housing and how you deal with it. And it, it does seem extraordinary to me that this problem has arisen and somehow or other you ask yourself, and you've been battling with it for ages, you know, and have been examining, you did the wreath lectures in which you, you tried to put a, a proposition forward. In fact, you spent the last 20 years of your life arguing about trying to make urban spaces work for people, for everyone. I mean, do you feel... Do you have any confidence that we're going to start addressing that, that problem? And what about 
architects like you, Amanda, and, and Richard, what, what can you do to help uh, ensure that, you know, there is a place for people uh, in the cities? Well, I, I um, in, in our own work, um, and I have obviously been influenced hugely by Richard, um, in two recent projects, both of them museum projects, the V&A, where the, the major, the, the most radical move is to create a courtyard, not, not a building, but to create a courtyard and a different relationship between the museum and the street and break down that, that, that barrier. Um, and, and to create a place that just belongs to London that you can hang out in, you don't have to go to the museum. I mean, that, that, you know, that came very much from, from the sort of thinking around the Pompidou and, and at the museum that we completed last year in, in Lisbon, Matt, uh, where we created a new public space on the roof for a very different reason, because the, the, the building had been cut off from the city and the, the riverfront. But this idea that public outdoor spaces have as much if not more agency than the buildings themselves is, in, in is the end, something that Amanda, the, either for your projects or maybe. Richard's, it depends on a client or someone paying for this, right? On allowing. Do, you, do you feel, Richard, taking Alan's point further, that you've been able, in your political positions, I mean, there are a few architects I know who've sat on boards as diverse as we say, you know, from, from the urban task force for government or the take, that the culture of commissioning has changed as a result of some of your banging on for the last 10 years. I mean, one has to be to use sort of an Italian word, furbo, clever, um, uh, and one has to negotiate with the local authorities. We have to persuade them to give us. We've just Roger Sturkin Harbour have just finished Leadenhall, which we're now occupying a, a floor. There was a negotiation to get the ground floor basically seven stories up and then to get a park underneath it or a square underneath it which moves on to the next side. It was a mixture of negotiation. Negotiations, first of all, for the developer and then secondly, with the local authority. So to have that uh, space but not lose money because the developers are in the business of making money. So you have to make that confidence, uh, make them confident and also feel that maybe they can get a bit more anyhow by lifting that building up and making it more unique. That maybe give it a little bit more rent. But actually most of the work has to be done between the local, the, the polit political element and the architectural. And I think architecture has got a lot of power. Of course, he often loses. That's part of the game. Um, and, but, and there are some barriers. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that because of the power of the capitalist society, our tendency is always to say we make money is the number one thing. Of course, not at the LSC, but at other places. Um, but there is a feeling. Of <laughs> there are a few here, yes. Um, therefore, the tendency is to squeeze as much out of whatever site you've got. But there are questions you can ask. What, what you're meant to be as an architect, thinking about people first and foremost, is what do you need? Now, I often say, in fact, I've said in that book, it should be a right for everybody to have a public space. It's starting on the doorstep or the stoop, as the Americans call it, so you can sit down, you can have a, you know, have a bench, a tree, and so on. And it should be a right for everybody to see a tree, a tree. These are rights, but it doesn't, but if you're only looking at money, one forgets the rights. So somehow you have to picture, paint a picture to enthuse, the, let's say, the developer or the client. And by the way, as far as I'm concerned, all our good buildings are done for clients who are 
in, uh, interesting clients. If you don't have an interesting client, you've got a real problem. Interesting client isn't someone who says yes, it's someone who said probably no, but if you've got a no, at least you can work your way around it. Um, <laughs> if you, the real problem is when the client actually is not very interested. Therefore, as far as he's concerned, he just wants the box. Um, so I think you, you do ha you have to negotiate with the, with the people you're working with. That's how you, how you get it. I, I mean, this story, this uh, perspective of yours reminds me of a very, very concrete story about uh, roughly 20 years ago. Uh, uh, we were working together in an organization called the Architecture Foundation. And this, you've got to think of 95, it would have been 10 years without any form of uh, representation of governance yeah. in London because Mrs. Thatcher and her wisdom had abolished it. Uh, so we organized some public debates with, in fact, um, two, three, nearly 2,500 people showed up once a month to actually debate London, you know, to have a, a voice, and uh, Alan uh, was one of the trustees that actually made that happen. And at that event, Rich, and I want to, you know, in a way, say, can one have an influence on a city? At that event, you got up and said, why is it that London, and remember, that was 95, it's not that long ago, all the public spaces are bloody roundabouts. That was the phrase you used, right? Never. Yeah. And since we didn't have a mayor then, we had John Gummer, who was the, 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 the remember him, the hamburger guy. Um, uh, he, he was sitting there, and effectively, I think you said, show of hands, who would like you know, to see Parliament Square and, and, and uh, Trafalgar Square turned into a proper people place? And lo and behold, you know, 99% put their hands up. That actually triggered... And it's yeah. in the book. Very, so say a little bit more about that story, because that did, you, I mean, had an impact. Yeah, but I, don't, I don't think that, it's, it's, my point is not that you can't have an impact, and I think the people, who in a way, of course, their interest is the, I, the people as the, the, the those 2,000 people in the, in, in the hall, They're, they weren't thinking about their pocket, they were thinking about how do we improve that society? Many, by the way, I'm told we're actually people who own taxes. It doesn't matter what it is. People want to have beautiful cities because it's a comfort. It gives comfort. Also, that people want to have cities where you can have housing, but not just housing, affordable housing. So these are problems which everybody tends to say yes. It's the difficulty is to get the thing, the government and especially the financial structure to give those elements, which we all agree about. I don't know. Does anyone dare to put up a hand and say, I hate public space? <laughs> well, many people say, I hate public space, which is actually privately owned. But anyway, Ah, yes, that <laughs> I agree. I should say have said that. Yeah. Alan, I think you were going to comment on this issue. No, I, I think, I suppose we're, we're looking at a challenge which is getting more, greater and greater. And despite the fact that we now have a mayor of London, one wonders how empowered he is. He's just made a decision to um, provide a space in the city, hasn't he, for, uh, for, um, for development on the basis that it will be for social housing and that the cost of that housing will be, will be limited. And also, the other challenge we have is the juxtaposition in the creation of communities. What happens in this public space? Who do you encounter in this public space? And the danger that you, you, know, you begin to develop social housing outside the, the urban space, you know, the urban space which is valuable to developers and others and elsewhere. And I, I don't quite know what the, what the answer to this is and whether... whether yeah, but what, what's interesting, and, and I don't quite understand where the money is coming from, but what's 
it seems interesting about the Sadiq's initiative is that it is social housing for social housing's sake. It is not on the back of a private development. Correct. Yeah, exactly and, that. And that's, that's and a it's big obviously, sea change. It is. Now, is that... I mean, that is a fascinating issue. I mean, he, it's exactly right what Amanda says. Normally, you're told, you know, you can do this as long as you do some social housing as well, but that's not what he's done. And the question is, is that a, a solution that can be... And obviously, the issue of public spaces is, is one that can be embraced as well as that. But is that something that, um, that we are seeing just one example of, or is it something that could be extended? I don't know. What do you think? Thought it could certainly be extended. I, we've gone through a series of phases through the 50 years where I'm talking about it as far as my life. I mean, after the war, local authorities, I mean, for instance, the GLA had 3,000 architects. I'm not sure whether it has three now, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but just to give you the power there, and I'm not saying the architects had given the solution, but it gives you a tone of the situation. And, a, and I say architects, there were also planners and, and, and engineers working towards a more livable city, which is the whole concept of that period and those of welfare you state. And wanted, wanted to work. Absolutely. That is the place. And in fact, everybody, I was going to say 80%, in my opinion, and I have never made that calculation, 80% when I was at the A, 80% of the architects worked for schools, hospitals, new, uh, towns, new towns, and so on, I, so, with a, a social vision. Today, it's, it's reversed. Um, but there is change, and th we then, Ken came in and said, okay, and uh, Richard Brown and I both uh, advisors to Ken, and one of the things we worked out was, let's say, tell the developers, yes, you can do it, but you can only do it, build housing yourselves as long as you put one social, affordable, as it was then called, for every two private houses. That was a step in the right direction. Um, unfortunately, in a way, the tendency was always to pull it out, but at least it had to be done Theoretically, in the postal code, that probably meant two miles um, of that area. The idea was right. We never quite got there, and then people started saying, ah, oh, but that cost puts the prices of land up, as it obviously does, because if you're going to do it that way, in other words, you're going to force prices down in certain areas. And obviously, the same thing is going to be said about this. There will be a f somebody's got to pay for it. If the government is willing to pay for it, and I believe I'm, I think we should be willing, welcoming good taxes, uh, then we have to be taxable to get what we want out of, out of Invericom, the livable city. And this links very, very strongly. We might go back a moment to your parents on arriving in London, to that period of the immediate post-war. You mentioned already the London School of Economics and uh, uh, the, 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 the beginning of the welfare state, the various institutions that at the moment are challenged, as we well know, National Health Service and many others. Um, and you've mentioned the fact that in, uh, and you talk about this a bit in the book, that the, there's been an erosion of the profession. But I think we've got to be careful to be negative, all the, uh, because I have to say, in rereading re the book, or in a way re-listening to you talk about things, there is this extraordinary optimism mm. that comes out. I mean, there's a, you know, there is a risk sometimes to, to have this conversation. And that optimism is also about that actually you, you can create the physical framework, and I, maybe that's, Adam, what you were getting at, um, around which then other things can happen. You can't design, you can't plan everything, but you can actually, uh, and this is how a little bit we see it in the work we do, you can certainly design things to become antisocial. So if, you, if that's true, you can also design things that actually engender inclusion and, uh, and well, other the, things. Well, the line of optimism is true, isn't it? Because actually London 
in the last 10 years is a far more congenial city to live in. E even the and outside spaces is not exactly what Rich is talking about, but of course, when did anyone sit outside in London 20, 25 years ago? They never did, you know. So what's the difference between Paris and London in the sense that, you know, the, the weather is much the same and all the rest of it? But we, we have now, our streets are more occupied by people. They're sure. not just places for going from one place to another. There are spaces which are, which are now occupied by people speaking to each other, and they want to live in an environment which is pleasing as well. So, and Richard, take us through these 50 years of London. <laughs> London was amazing it's my memory of London especially after the war it was amazingly isolated um, very poor which makes it and I'll come back that's amazing that we decided on that we would accept the welfare state at a point where we were truly poor I mean the, uh, Germany, France much of Europe was getting money from the states for the bombing and rightly so but Marshall we, plan. the Marshall Plan we, did, we, we weren't in that during so it was actually, in one sense, a tough time. Of course, rationing actually saved us. England has never been healthier. The gap between the top and the bottom has never been smaller than that period after, after, that, that, uh, after, uh, after the war. But there was an idealism about a better nation, a better... Okay. And it took a long time. I, my memory of starting working, uh, and actually as a student, is that people rushing across Waterloo Bridge wearing a black bowler hat or wasn't there, suits and so on, going to work, and they were rushing out. There was nowhere to stop. Yes, there were clubs, male-only and expensive, and there were pubs, more or less male-only. So where the hell would you stop? Um, so, and now, of course, you know, the cafe. The, I use the cafe as a general road, the whole thing of talking on of benches and so on. You know, we, Trafalgar Square is, has been yes. uh, pedestrianised, and there are a massive number of people, and, you know, the... the London has got immense power. London now competes probably with any, any major city in the world, which is certainly where it wasn't, it wasn't there in 1945, 1946. So we could be optimistic if, as long as we are not extremely uh, complacent. complacent and economically driven. And, of course, I mean, the two things which I, as a young man, I used to think will never happen, this is when I was 20, is A, nationalism, and we are seeing that... Mm -hmm. Uh, rearing its head, and that's a dangerous element, and of course extreme religion as well. So we're seeing these ext extremists, and those extremists could kill us all, all that optimism which I'm talking about off. But I, I think the, you know, one of the most important things that I've learned from you, Richard, and I, I'm not alone in this, is that, and, and I think, you know, it, it speaks of optimism, is that it is our responsibility as architects to be radical and it's our responsibility of architects to have an impact beyond the confine of the building. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you look at the, the, the younger generation of architects, they, ha they are much more socially engaged um, than, than previous generations. I, I do think that they're, despite uh, the Brexit looming, I do think that there is um, cause for optimism. I think you may be right, though I do think we need to change the education radically. We just need to stop having architects who only learn about buildings, but learn about what we've been discussing, the whole idea of solving problems. That we are in the business of you know, designing roofs over people, which is a place for all people. The name of the book comes out of the first paragraph, as I said before, from the Pompidou, a place for all people, all ages, all creeds. And I think we have to recognize that's what we're serving. Right, we have now about 15 minutes for 
comments or questions. So there are microphones both at the upper level and at the lower level. And we might want to take, you know, one or two uh, uh, questions together. Uh, please direct them at Richard or Alan or Amanda. Uh, and as I said, say who you are. It's good for so that we all know and uh, be concise, please. So are there any questions on the floor? There's one coming up here. So could we have, hello, microphone. So one, one over here, and we can start with the lady with the orange. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Um, this is. Up. Oh, yeah. gosh, really? Okay. <laughs> Hi. Who is it? This is for Richard. And I'm Sarah. Out of all of the projects that you've worked on, what, what's the one that never came to life that you really wish yeah. had have done? Well, answer that directly, mm -hmm. I guess. <laughs> <You> me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me? I'm not sure I can say that, but I suppose in terms of London, uh, we did that exhibition, uh, which sort of, I suppose did start the ball rolling at the Royal Academy, London as it, as it could be, where we tried to create a more livable city. But it's a difficult one. I mean, we've done a number of different buildings which we never managed to build. I don't know. I would like to think that we that the Arctic's life would be such that we don't that everybody and I'm just one. That, Build, I mean, if we build one out of 20 buildings, I think I'm being optimistic. And that is pretty tough. <laughs> Question over there. Can you stand up? Hi, hi my name's Ben. Um, thank you very much for an interesting talk and a lifetime of inspiring architecture. Um, I wanted to ask about the, sort of the, the social problems. And for me, one of the, the things that's quite sad is we've, we've talked a lot today about brilliant set-piece architecture, and we haven't talked about the day-to-day -day architecture of the building in London. And, and it seems to me that a lot of London is being built without influence or any input from architects, which I find quite sad. And we're losing some gems like the Robin Hood Estate in East London, which I went to see before I got knocked down. And how, as architects, do you make sure that the state and private enterprise has a bigger role in architecture and can influence the way we live in buildings? Participate. <laughs> March, whatever. Um, you know, I don't know any other way. You have to actually act. And I think that's the way. In, in a way, we may have lost some of that. I mean, obviously, again, the war created a situation. Uh, where people were more willing to, to act. But I think we just have to, we have, I mean, I, I don't mind whether you write articles or where you had debates like this, there has to be more of them. There are a lot of people out there, including our own man right now, who, are, who need our power, to need to feel that we want what we're all talking about, a better London. And that goes for you know, the simple house as well as the pedestrianising Trafalgar Square. But you, you talked about you know, doing more as an architect than designing buildings yes. and solving problems. I think that we, as architects, we have to become more entrepreneurial. And we can create our own projects. You know, we're not, we can find our own clients. We should be finding the people to pay for projects and just, just define the projects that we want to do and make them happen. It's perfectly possible. There's a huge amount of money out there um, and you just need to be resourceful and entrepreneurial and 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 be your own client create your own project I think what Richard says as well is true but actually we you know it's not just the professionals who have to speak London belongs to everyone it belongs to all the people here and those voices need to be heard 
And we're living in a world where politicians now are going to be obliged to listen. There's a lot of noise out there, and there are a lot of means to make your voice heard. So I think there need to be communities of interest where communities say, well, we've seen what's happened with Grenfell, and we've seen the calamity that that has brought about and the questions it has raised. And I, I, I think you need to use, to use that opportunity to take power to speak out particularly in whatever communities you, you are or whatever your, you know, those issues are which concern you. And clearly, uh, uh, public space, social housing, um, equality uh, and opportunity, um, these things are incredibly important. And uh, they, uh, they, they, there now is a moment when governments can be challenged. And as, as, uh, as Richard says, Sadiq Khan is, wants to do stuff, I don't know how empowered mayors are, but they're certainly a lot more empowered if they have the public behind them. Yeah. There are a lot of strings from central yeah. government. They're less empowered than practically any nation I know, yeah, actually. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're not... They're not really Let, let's, uh, one, can you stand up? Sure. Yeah. Hi, good evening. Um, my name is William Wong. I'm, I'm a photographer. Uh, but I've got a question, actually, via SMS from my best friend, who can't be here, so it's quite interesting. Um, it's about chaos theory. So I'm not going to read from my phone, but I, the, the gist is she thinks... The increasing dense clusters of high-rise you see everywhere in the city and across major cities in the world, causing all this wind tunnel effect. Aren't they uh, exacerbating the effects of climate change? And she wonders whether architects actually feel responsible for that. But that's what, what uh, she asked me to ask you. Whether tall buildings are exacerbating. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a chaos theory expert. Most of coal-fired stations in China. <laughs> I do wonder what you, you might have to say. But, um, yeah. I don't Thank know you. whether we have the expertise here no, to I'm answer. But I'm, I'm happy to answer, answer yeah. a bit of that question. Um, that is a, you know, the compact city is extremely efficient in terms of climate change, which is a critical uh, problem. I mean, a uh, sprawling town... Uh, uses three times as much, or suburbia, if you like, energy as a compact one. It doesn't mean you have to have tall buildings, which in a way doesn't answer. I'm always saying Barcelona is the most dense city in Europe, and the density gets pretty close to, to, to Manhattan's sort of density, because it's got a bloody good plan, and no building is more or less higher than eight stories. So planning is a lot to do. It. I haven't, I mean, height is, we've always had higher buildings, and I doubt whether you can prove the point you've made, but certainly one should always test out on the winds around one's uh, buildings. Whether a single building with, you know, is better than a, uh, than a sprawl, I, have, I don't know. It's not okay, we have one, two, and then three. So second there. Uh, since Alan Stanton will not say this, he was one of the members of the uh, team that designed the Pompidou Center, so I'll say it instead. <laughs> is it working? If not, we can go here and then come back. Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually, he is going to say that. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Keep it close. We can't hear you. Wait. Uh, can we change microphone? Can we change microphone? Or turn it on? No, okay. Okay, we'll have that. Meanwhile, we're going to have... Here we go. Alan is coming just behind you. Number two. Does that work? That work? Yeah. 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 Okay. No, I, I'm just saying it's so refreshing to hear Richard say that um, the education of architects need to um, re-emphasize the importance of what we're designing as buildings for people. Um, 
and there is there's been this huge emphasis on what buildings look like now the aesthetics of, build, of architecture are terribly important but there's this uh, there's this kind of preoccupation with the image quality of building rather than what buildings actually do and how they function and how they improve people's lives and um, I mean I can remember Joseph Rickford said um, you know an architect always has two clients he has the client who's paying for the building, but he also has the public as his other client. So we all have, we have to bear that in mind. And in you know, my memory of the working on the Pompidou Centre, which I did with Richard and Renzo many, many years ago, um, it was a time when Richard and I perhaps worked most closely together over a number of years, and we were fighting to... Uh, protect the building or the kind of integrity of the building um, against uh, institutional um, conservatism which always tended to try and push it into the way of protecting the building and turning it into a much more conventional space principally on the piazza which we saw as a public space so we put a lot of time in trying to get the flower market the circus and all the rest of it onto that onto that space as it turned out, we need hardly have worried. It just, from day one, it just became full of activity, which was absolutely wonderful. Um, but it w there was that kind of battle. How do you make spaces that are really going to work for people? And that is a real craft, and it's a really important craft for architecture. I'd just like to add one thing. Uh, thank you, Alan. Uh, and that is, it slightly it lost some of its power the moment that Leao was reorganized and there was a lot of public space there. And the point I'm trying to make, in other words, you suddenly enlarged the space, became too big for that whole area in a way. Um, though it's still a, a fantastic space. It does imply that obviously architecture has to go beyond the building you're building. You have to be, have some responsibility for a much bigger area. Okay. Hello. Thank you. My name is Marcus Wilcox. I agree with the panel uh, that over perhaps the past decade or two, the the public realm in London has seen new uses and new levels of engagement that it hadn't seen previously, but arguably that new use is, is reaching a decreasing demographic of people who are <coughs> perhaps economically disposed to fit into the cafe culture that, that the private realm seems to be promoting. And I wonder if um, what's, the, what's the new way to, to sort of avoid a discord between the new desire for social housing floating off in one direction while what we're actually doing in the public realm isn't serving those communities and the wider diversity of communities. Not everyone wants to drink coffee in a public space. Some people want to I don't, I don't undertake I, I other activities in public spaces. I do believe that's an incredibly important space. I mean, we don't want two worlds out there. And I, I, I believe it does require government and local authorities to take responsibility, frankly. I mean... We shall see what happens. I mean, there's also a paradox here that one of the arguments about what happened in Notting Hill is that, you know, that there are these two worlds and they confront one another in the same place. And there certainly was an, an attempt more recently to, to take some of these old buildings, including Grenfell and others. Well, Grenfell may not have been the one. And to adapt them to a, for a more prosperous um, sales to others and then uh, export uh, your, you know, the, the, the social housing to, to other parts. I think that would be 
disastrous, personally. So I think that has to be one of the, the challenges. But unless there is a chorus of people saying, we don't want to leave, and you've got to address our needs as well, uh, and the city is for us all, and we, we can't have these two worlds, sort of, uh, co they need to, we need to cohabit, then I think there'll be a problem. But Richard, Amanda, let's answer the same question. Where and where does design come into it, if at all? Well, I, I was going to answer it not, not through design, actually, just through an example, a, a very different city. But the mayor of Porto, as Porto was is becoming regenerated and a lot of foreign investors were coming in and buying the buildings and local people were being forced out. They could no longer afford the, the rents. He made a... He, he, he put, made a policy that no more buildings would be sold and no building, uh, that foreign investors would be hugely taxed, you know, penalizing taxes. And he bought back buildings and he said, yes, I could spend all this money and I could build a bridge, which is like a lot of mayors do. But what would I have? I'd have a bridge and I wouldn't have the people the very people who made this city so exciting, the reason that people want to, to come to this city. And he is, you know, in a very radical way, he is just buying back and giving um, apartments and, and buildings, refurbishing them and giving them back to not just key workers, but to the baker, to the butcher, yes, to the, yes. the people whom, you know, a, a city depends. And, and it's, it's having an impact. But Richard? that's... That's policy, it's not design. Richard, on that point? Are you saying what can architects do? I think I suppose one of the things we have to think of, A, as architects, we're actually citizens first and foremost. So architects is a sort of thing that, we, that the RIBA gives us in this country. But we have a role as a, as a, as a citizen of the this, of this society. And I think we have, we have to play it. There's no question that government has a lot of potential, but we're going through an age where it's actually, we want less government, and the less government we're going to have, the less good is the city going to be. And if we look at the cities we like, whether it's Porto, or whether it's Florence, or wherever it is, at that, those high points, there was a lot of government. And the, I think in the end, if I had to say the most difficult problem that we're going through, and you all know it, uh, especially at the LSC, uh, is inequality. And there's tremendous inequality. And the rich get richer and richer. And they, okay, they give a little bit of money, but there's nowhere near the sort of money that we're talking about. So we have to find another way. It has to be taxes. And there can't be a ways of avoiding taxes. Yep. So last two questions. Um, Here and then yep. over there. The, uh, I mean, every country, every city is different. A Porto is not London. Uh, Sajid Khan is, uh, is not the mayor of, uh, of a Porto. I write about street markets and street market buildings, and I've traveled around the world, and I've profiled how food and markets and a local economy has been destroyed by, by money coming in. Uh, the Rotterdam Food Hall has disenfranchised many of the local food traders. The very thing you're talking about, a, re, a regeneration or a resurgence of people or uh, uh, venues for people to interact, I think is, in my opinion, is double talk because what you're really doing in London and other cities, uh, excepting a Porto and maybe a few others, is allowing for the destruction of local places for local people. You're bringing in, as this gentleman said behind me, the cafe culture 
it's all very organized, it's very expensive, you can sit out if you spend five or ten pounds on a coffee and a piece of cake or something. This is very different from, from the local markets and from the local market uh, culture. Florence is a great exception. The uh, Florentine life, that's a city I'd love to live in. Uh, the Florentine life is still very, it's very much a people's town, a very much a people's city. But not many cities still are people's cities. There have been huge fights in London where the developers of Smithfield Market, of Spitalfield, of all of them have come in and tried to take over. People have tried to push them back. It hasn't, it hasn't worked. All right, thank you very much. And last question over there, and then we'll answer both together. Thank you very much for that. Just over there, put your hand up. Uh, Christian Yalki. Um, the, the Reese lecture was briefly mentioned uh, prior. I re-listened to uh, some of them yesterday, especially number five, and um, something which goes through it uh, in, in your talks at the time, and that's 95, so it's 22 years ago, was sustainability, uh, which uh, hasn't come up today so far. Uh, it's very important to me, not only in architecture, but in all walks of life, transport, energy, and so on and so on. Um, so you, you were very progressive and optimistic 22 years ago. You, you've been living in the city. You know what's been happening. Uh, how, how is it about your, with your optimism and your, um, how, how you see it today? So these two very positive comments about <laughs> cities are turning the wrong way and not addressing people, and why haven't we talked about sustainability. Why don't you all uh, perhaps reflect on them and with uh, closing comments. Alan, would you like to comment on either? Then well, Amanda and then Richard. Sustainability is, is the big picture, isn't it? I mean, how do we create and sustain a, 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 a city, an urban culture which is, which is fair, which is progressive, which it creates communities and doesn't undermine them? And uh, that's what you're saying now. And one of the dangers, and I live in an area which it's happening in, like... Uh, Notting Hill Gate is there. There is a moment in the in the middle period when things feel natural and great, and there's like there's a bit of Notting Hill called Goldbourne Road, which takes you into Kensal Rise and beyond that, which has got a multicultural feel, is great, but it's being taken over by people who are investing in it and trying to turn it into something else. Westbourne Grove completely transformed now in, in, a, in a bad way. Okay, no, no, understood. Well, they are trying to. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would just, just to answer, not to answer, but just to support your view. I, mean, I think markets, street markets, are the lifeblood of an area. And they need no infrastructure. They need no money um, to make them happen. They're, you, you can uh, appropriate a street or a square with a, a, a market. And, Yes, but maybe the, you know, part of the policy or part of the um, programming of a, an architect scheme should be to design them back. So since we want to conclude on a positive note, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as you've noticed, every time you ask Richard a question, <laughs> architecture is not necessarily the first thing he talks, thinks about, but the way he's intervened in public life has been through architecture. And to take your... Last point, Richard, would be very interesting. I mean, in many ways, you do say it right at the beginning of the book, Richard Brown and you in your opening paragraphs, that actually sustainability is at the heart of everything you're saying. And just to be fair or self-critical, we haven't talked about the environmental side that much. But screwing you down to talking about architecture. That's a very interesting No, as, uh, in terms of a final reflection, 
where does the design of buildings, given that you know, you're here with your practice, which is at the forefront of environmentally uh, sensitive designs, where does architecture and urban planning, what role does it play in dealing with the climate change question? Maybe I'll divide into two. I think the first, to be brief, I often say there's more to architecture than architecture. In other words, there's more to architecture than buildings. It is spaces in between them. It is a sustainability. It's a broad subject. Um, and we have to treat it as such. Clearly, we don't have that much power. We have some power. Some of us have done a little bit more than others. But overall, we are sort of, we have difficulties, whether it's markets, your point. And on the whole, I don't think that the the architect can do very much in the sense of just leaving a wider route. But he can, we can do something about telling the local borough that we demand to have that space. We can have what I call march, but you you don't have to march physically. You can do it in many other other ways of, of communication. You can only do it by accepting that that's part of architecture. Now, I think it's part of a whole lot of things, economics and so on. As, 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 as well as that. In terms of climate change, I suppose we can at one level, apart from our president in the, sta- in the States, um, we can at one level saying we're getting better. I mean, we are, you know, the cost of solar energy is coming down at just some tremendous speed. Um, the, the, there is much talk, talk now of, stop, of stopping the, car guzzling, uh, the, the gas guzzling car. So there are ways, and it may, there is sort of the beginning to be uh, uh, loops of, uh, let's say, of the, I'm more optimistic there. Again, it won't happen, except if there are rules, because if, you, if in the end, which is what's happening, the, and I do remember this when I first went out, when I was again, probably 40 or 50 years ago, uh, I went out to the Middle East where actually water was more, expe- was more expensive than gas. When we get that to that price, only governments can step in. They can only say, you can't buy petrol to use gas. Pe- you can't uh, buy petrol at a price less than water because if water is, has no implication, let's say, on, uh, on climate change, it has plenty of, cl- uh, of implication, obviously, on, on growth of, uh, of food. Um, then governments, we have to persuade governments and we have to take to change, and we personally have to be res- feel each one of us responsible for doing better. Right, on that note, I want to bring the evening to an end, also to allow some of you to come up uh, and get your books signed. The books, as I say, are being sold outside by Canongate. So uh, I'm, only one thing left for me to do is to thank the publishers for arranging uh, this event in terms of the book being here and beautifully done. Congratulations for that beautiful book. Uh, Thank the organizers here at the LSE uh, and at the practice, Rochester Harbor, for helping a lot. But obviously join me now in thanking the three speakers, Amanda Allen.